What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Michael, this uh, Orlando returned at the NBA, and the NBA uh, Players Association are trying to pull off. Hit some speed bumps, I would say, over the last few days, um, largely because uh, more than 75 players participated in a conference call on Friday to sort of discuss the 22-team plan, uh, which is having you know games set for that single-site campus in Orlando uh, to you know games to begin on July 30th. I think that their concerns, uh, you know, range from health and safety to quality of life, um, and now also, of course, to social justice issues and just sort of the timing and, and whether this would potentially you know be a distraction at this particular moment to be throwing professional basketball uh, right back into the mix when so many of the star players are participating and in some cases leading protests across the country. Uh, I'm curious, Michael, when you're sort of, you know, sifting through the reporting that came out of that meeting, uh, does it seem to you like the social justice issue has now become the most divisive point? Is that what, you know, guys are kind of clinging to? Or do you still see this as kind of a buffet of concerns as they're trying to figure things out uh, down there at Disney World? I think the Black Lives Matter movement and whether or not players want believe that you know it is a distraction to play games I think that that is obviously the newest wrinkle here and perhaps the thorniest and the most difficult to untangle and come to agreement with uh, among the players and whether or not they should play and whether or not if you play you're amplifying your voice and or whether or not you're distracting away from the cause uh, but I think, like, at the end of the day, the biggest issue here, or one of is, I mean, money is a humongous issue. Um, health and safety is still a humongous issue. And I think, you know, the freedom to enter and exit the bubble as they so please is also just, these are all kind of humongous competing issues with this, with this, uh, with this plan. So you talked to Damian Lillard last week uh, for an interview uh, with GQ, which I thought was excellent. You hit on uh, a whole bunch of topics, including he told an incredible story about a, a pretty traumatic traffic stop that he had when he was driving from his home in Oakland uh, back to college in Utah and just sort of uh, the harassment and the humiliation that he endured at the hands of police officers. But you also asked him about the NBA's return, and he sounded very conflicted. Um, you know, It sounded like his... Heart was being pulled one way with this idea that the people in his community and his family members, people who rely on him, kind of really mm-hmm. need him at this moment. Um, but at the same time, obviously, we know he campaigned a few weeks ago uh, to make sure the Blazers were in this uh, you know, resumption plan so that they would have a chance to make the playoffs. I'm curious, what vibe did you get from Damian Lillard? Of course, it's not going to be his decision alone here, but as a superstar... I imagine someone in his position carries, you know, a little bit more weight than the average player. Um, Did you get the sense from him that the NBA's plan was crumbling, that this was just guys, you know, airing grievances and getting things off their chest? Was it just a a case of maybe a little bit of cold feet now that some of these guys are, you know, realizing that they're going to have to report to their teams here, uh, you know, in a week or so uh, to their home markets? I mean, what was just the general sentiment uh, from Lillard when you guys spoke? Yeah, I mean, I point blank asked him if the season was going to resume, because I think that if you ask that question to different people, you're going to get different answers. And he was pretty, I would say, 
diplomatic about that one, basically saying that, you know, if you're asking me today, what's being reported is that we're playing, so we're going to be playing. But I think the general tenor of his voice and uh, his sentiment was, you know, sadness, frustration. I think he was a little bit angry with everything that's going on or very angry with what's going on in the country. And I mean, I'll just read this quick abbreviated quote that he gave when I asked him this hypothetical about, uh, you know, if games were, if if protesting was still a thing in this country uh, in late July, you know, would you be comfortable uh, playing basketball games? And he basically said, quote, "I, I think about it every day. Look at the lengths that we're going to play a basketball game when there's something so much greater going on, something so much more meaningful going on that really needs us. So, I mean, it's a battle every day for me, man. And so from that quote, I mean, it's like, I think he will play if games are being played. I don't think he would sit. But this is something that certainly is weighing on him. And I think it's a very personal decision for every, basically every player in the entire league. Right. I mean, I think that players who are feeling like Lillard, you can easily have those uh, those reservations, those hesitations, those concerns. Are you willing to go to the next step and say, you know what, this is not worth it. I'm willing to sacrifice my salary and I, I'm trying to organize a movement of other players that do the same thing to potentially block this plan. That is, uh, you know, a, a different concern. And we've actually seen a couple guys, whether it's Dwight Howard or Lou Williams, you know, express this this same uh, concept that, hey, playing would be a distraction, um, kind of following in line with what Steven Jackson has said about, look, the only thing that's mm-hmm. going to happen if basketball comes back is that everyone talks about the playoffs on TV. And that's, uh, you know, putting uh, kind of a cover over uh, the ongoing protests. Uh, even those guys are saying, look, I'm not necessarily happy about it, but I'm also not saying for a fact that I won't play. They're at least leaving open the, the, the door for the idea that they could still participate and that's where it gets tricky because they're going to have to make a decision here pretty quickly and to me that's where I wonder if the NBA isn't actually a pretty good position to salvage this thing because you know if you don't have a big block of guys who are just firmly committed no matter what to not playing you're probably going to be able to salvage something would you agree Michael am I misreading it yeah I mean I I think that there's a long time to go between now and the end of July. And right now, I think people are very emotionally raw about this. And I mean, I can personally see both sides of the argument. You know, I see what LeBron is saying when he, he you know, he wants to play and he believes that he can still affect the cause with his platform and to a greater degree when games are being played. And who is to doubt LeBron when he says these things because he's doing a ter- terrific job in, in many different ways already. Um, and then I also see like, you know, Austin Rivers uh, or Garrett Temple's point of view where they don't want to lose a portion of their money and, and they believe that with their money, like the, the, that they can help fund and help contribute to the Black Lives Matter movement and in ways financially. Uh, and so losing money does not help their ability to help. Um, and then again, I also see the other side where, you know, you mentioned Dwight Howard, you mentioned Lou Williams. Uh, I also see like George Hill saying that he and he plays for a contender and he plays a big role for a contender, as, as does Dwight. And him saying that he does he's not even really thinking about basketball right now. Um, 
So I just, I don't know. There's really no right answer here. Uh, there's no one obvious path. I don't know what's going to happen and how it will play out. I think the next question is how many players do you need to continue the se- to, to continue the season? And that's a, a thornier question and a more difficult one. But right now for this particular issue, it's just there's a lot of, a lot of mud in the water. So before we get into how many players you need, because that is the next question for sure. And I wrote about that in my newsletter today for the Washington Post if people want to check it out. But there is one other voice here kind of looming, and that would be Kyrie Irving. We got a question from Chris who writes in, it appears that Kyrie Irving is one of the leading voices of dissent among the players. Why would a guy who won't even be there and playing do this? And if true, doesn't this do more harm to his already shaky uh, reputation? So what Chris is referring to there, Michael, is the idea that Kyrie, who is a member of the, um, the Players Union Board, who obviously is one of the highest paid players in the league as a max salary guy, um, and one of the most famous, uh, you know, players in the league as well, uh, has kind of come out in, in that um, uh, conference call with the other players and said, "Hey, like I'm, I'm not really sure if this is the best thing for us." Um, you know, it, it sounded like he was calling the, uh, you know, the plan fishy, according to reports, which is a little unclear about what exactly his, uh, you know, problem is with this plan. Um, you know, but at the same time, I think it, it sounded like in the overall call. Again, he was open to the possibility of if guys still wanted to play that uh, he would go along with them and to try to keep a unified front. So, Michael, what do you make of Kyrie emerging as this kind of major polarizing figure over the weekend where it seems like everybody's weighing in with a different take on Kyrie and uh, whether his heart is in the right place or whether he's missing the point or or these other perspectives um, that emerged here over the last 72 hours? I think it's it's always difficult to separate what someone is saying from who is saying it and I think when I when I personally think of Kyrie Irving you know I think he's a mercurial person who uh you know he's a man of conviction who either doesn't always think about how his actions and his words affect people or doesn't really care and to be honest if I were a union rep I would not have voted him into the position of vice president that he currently holds uh, but that's being said, like, I also am squeamish when people are condemning his views uh, because of who he is, because I personally agree with a lot of the things that he's saying or at least trying to convey. And I, too, would more side with basketball being played is a distraction from everything that's going on. And so it's just kind of a shame that uh the man here is kind of the the focus of the story when he shouldn't be i know he's a humongous name and he has this uh this great following and he has all these fans and everything like that but it's not really about Kyrie Irving it's this other the, the, the what's really at play is here is this conversation this fascinating convers- conversation about whether players should play or should not play over the racial injustice and fight for equality that's going on in our country right now. Yeah, for sure. I remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the idea that, remember the superstars had that phone call, LeBron and and, and uh, Jamie Lillard was on and Anthony Davis, a bunch of these guys, Kevin Durant, sure. and they all kind of came to the consensus that they, were, they would want to play. And then after the George Floyd news hit, I think I made an offhanded comment about well, I wonder what would happen if they had that same phone call today. Maybe people would feel differently, right? 
And mm-hmm. I think that's sort of what we're seeing play out here with Kyrie Irving. And look, I mean, he has driven me crazier than almost any player over the last five years in terms of the things that he said publicly on other topics, um, you know, his erratic, uh, you know, here today, gone tomorrow type behavior, some of his decision making and playoff games. I mean, a lot of it really, really aggravates me. But I think this is a situation where when you actually look at the timeline of how this thing went, when the players were being asked for their opinions, a lot has changed here in June alone, right? And we're only halfway through the month. Uh, And so it would be natural for, um, you know, somebody to pipe in and say, hey, let's not necessarily just go along with the program. Uh, You know, the chessboard has moved here in major ways in terms of what our priorities are as as athletes and, and what we're trying to do. I think that unfortunately, you know, Kyrie has never really cared that much for the media. It does seem like he has a certain level of disdain for it. And I wonder if there, if he was truly committed to this idea of not playing, if there was just a better way to get his message out. And I'm sure he's mostly concerned with what do the fellow players think and communicating with them directly. Um, But I do think that maybe he was slightly his own worst enemy on this one because he winds up becoming this huge target for very powerful forces to kind of undermine him and uh, almost, you know, turn him into this, uh, you know, like I said, a polarizing figure. And maybe that, um, you know, winds up changing and and kind of polluting the conversation a little bit, right? Like if there was a way Mm -hmm. for him to, uh, you know, line up other players uh, who were all of a similar mind, put put together a joint statement where it's like, hey, here's our position, or maybe even have requests to the NBA about like, hey, you know, here's here's what we would like to see, um, you know, in terms of like compromises or a long-term solution to kind of make this thing happen. Because right now you wound up having what felt like to me kind of an unproductive 72 hours where at least the truth in terms of how some of these players felt came to the surface. But it's not clear to me how those concerns are going to be addressed other than like, hey, by the way, you have to show up to your teams next week. And, uh, you know, if you don't do it, there is going to be some portion of the public that turns hard against you, just like they turned against Kyrie. I don't know. Like, we don't know really what if some of those steps maybe Kyrie chose to take. I mean, like. At the end of the day, well, what I'm saying is, we we didn't get a players' tribune essay, right? We didn't get um, <laughs> a, a long extended interview. I mean, there's a lot of ways that if if he really no, felt right. deeply about this, he could have put it out. I'm not, you know, chastising him for not. I just wonder that, uh, you know, his position to me, it didn't come through clearly, uh, either in the reporting about that conference call, which I was trying to be mm-hmm. a part of, um, and it didn't necessarily come through clearly in terms of like uniting what I think is going to be a, you know, a minority position within the union, because, uh, you know, as we know from polling in the past, and as we've seen from the progress that has been made in these talks, like there is a lot of people who want to continue to play for various reasons, some of them financial, some of them legacy reasons, some of them just because they love basketball. And, you know, if you're pushing against that tide, I just feel like you're best served being as clear and as straightforward and as mobilized and kind of united as possible and I'm not sure that he accomplished those goals here. I'll agree with that for sure. But I, I just think it's kind of like a lose-lose for Kyrie in a situation like this just because of his reputation and because of how he operates. And 
I yeah, kind of just and I'm really trying to strip it away from that. I don't want to turn this into like the the bash Kyrie hour because of you know something that he did in the the Celtics Bucks playoffs two years ago. Uh, I'm just no, more saying like if it's any player stepping up in this role, it could have been anyone, right? It could have been Dwight or or whoever. Um, you know, I think that you have to change a lot of minds if that's your opinion, because you've got a lot of players who are already just sort of mentally starting to commit to that idea, and you really have very little time. I mean, I know the games don't start until at the end of July, but the NBA's timeline here begins basically next week in terms of guys showing up, you know, getting tested, going through the quarantine period, and then, you know, heading into the kind of training camp and everything else like that in their local markets. Uh, so to me, I just wonder, uh, you know... But like, real quick, Ben, like, Clearly, or at least to me, Kyrie did not want this message necessarily to be public, right? I mean, he says it on this conference call. Uh, who was on the, the call? Was basically just seventy-five other players, approximately, right? And I'm sure some other members of the union, right? And there was just some reporting even before that call, though, that oh, Kyrie has sort of emerged as a guy right. who's been talking to other players privately. So. You're right. I mean, again, what's the proper way to do this? I mean, we can kind of Monday morning quarterback that all day long. I mean, perhaps he's just losing a battle. I mean, it, was there no way to, to lead this kind of insurgency and actually have it pay off? Is No, is, and yeah, no, for sure. And I, I just think like this whole conversation is a very difficult one and a very uncomfortable one for some people. And... Like, in reading all of the articles that I did over the past few days on the issue, there are so many anonymous quotes from players. I mean, we cited Dwight, we cited George Hill, Lou Williams' tweet, Pat Beverly tweeted something, LeBron has clearly leaked his his views to to several reporters. Um, But there's a lot of, like, anonymous quotes out there from players, and those happen to be, like, the most insightful that I've come across. And it's just kind of a shame to me that people are, like, I guess they're not comfortable enough putting their name to their opinion on this issue. And, like, I again— Chris Chris Haynes had one for sure where he's like, look— you know, Disney World's not that magical from a player, right? Uh, a guy, a guy told me that he kind of felt like their team was going to be props for television. You know, it's like you know because they're not one of the contenders, and you're looking at this 22 team uh, format, and everybody's got to go down there and be stuck there for more than 35 days, and they still don't know what kind of hotel accommodations and you know freedom of movement they're going to have, and it's like. You know, at this particular moment in American history, it's like you do kind of feel like a prop for television, right? It's like, you know, what mm-hmm. what am I really doing here? Is this is this how I want to be con- confined and, and spending my time? Let me ask you this question. Is there some sort of compromise or olive branch that Adam Silver and the NBA owners could put out for these players that have this concern? Could they agree to some level of like all protest goes, right? Is there... I mean, something as corny as a jersey patch or something that they could put on the court that's like always a visible emblem during the games so that they could feel like that they they were still getting the Black Lives Matter uh, or other movement messages out. Is it possible that they could kind of remove all restrictions on, you know, things related to the national anthem? Um, So if players wanted to kneel, they could kneel without, you know, any sort of, uh, you know, league-wide or, I guess, internal um, controversy or pushback? Could it be something where they're given extra time for post-game uh, press conferences? So if guys want to give, you know, a speech or whatever it might be, um, you know, they're they're able to do that. Uh, 
um, you know, on a nationally televised stage. I mean, is there anything the NBA can do here to do more than just the the thing that everybody makes fun of on Twitter, which is we hear you, we see you, right? Like, is there any kind of like no, I, tangible yeah. thing? <laughs> that last point that you said is something that I've been thinking about, which is players in kind of the the post game press conference atmosphere, where. First of all, I don't even know what that's going to look like. And, you know, if the season carries on, how many media members are going to be there and what that setting is, because I can't imagine the same type of energy that we're that we're accustomed to in those podiums, you know, where there's just all these media, there's all these cameras. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know what it's going to be like, like the Milwaukee Bucks in the first round of the playoffs, you know? <laughs> I mean, maybe 15 or 20 people spread out, but you'll have the podium, you'll have a microphone, and the bottom line is guys like LeBron and Kyrie, and there's other guys out there, treat that podium like it's a stage. They own it. Westbrook, I mean, they go up there, they've got, you know, sometimes... Exactly. The out- no, they make statements. Yeah, yeah they, they make sure. statements. They're, they're giving you the storylines. They've, you know, they've already like thought of exactly how they're going to, uh, you know, pitch things. They've, they've probably memorized some lines beforehand, you know, I mean, they... They really take that part of it seriously. I actually think of the entire playoffs, Michael, that's like the one part that could actually feel normal, you know, because the stage is a stage. You could you could set up a black screen behind a uh, a table and a chair kind of anywhere, right? And these guys are going to have their person personalities uh, no matter what. Um, so is that what you would so, hone in on then? Well, real quick, I actually just thought of this off the top of my head while you were talking. And tell me what you think about, so say I'm Russell Westbrook and I obviously do not want to I'm not a huge fan of the post-game presser in terms of answering questions about what took place on the court. But say I'm I'm Westbrook or I'm whatever player, whoever it may be, and I say, you know, in my place at my post-game press conference, I want a Black Lives Matter organizer and social activists to sit in my stead and answer questions about what's going on in the country. Would that, do you think that something like that would be very, would that be positive? Would that be uh, helpful? What do you think about something like that? And I know the people asking the questions would be NBA reporters, so it's like there need to be a tweaking here, but something where, look, I'm a player, but I'm using my platform to give it to someone who does not have the same No, I hear you, and the worst part about this is like, we're trying to like, it's whack-a-mole, because we're trying to like, okay, what progress can we make on uh, social justice. And at the same time, I'm just thinking like, how many times did this black activist have to be tested for coronavirus to even get inside the bubble so that he can sit at that stage, (laughs) you know, and he's gonna have to be six feet away from Westbrook. It just, the whole thing is just a train wreck. Um, If they pull this thing off, it's going to be remarkable. Um, No, I hear you. I wonder, I mean, there could be other partnership media endeavors, right? Where it's like, okay, I'll... I'll play here, but you know, before like when we're doing the pregame story or the postgame story, if you're LeBron, I need you guys to you know do a feature on more than a vote, so that we're talking about this uh, you know voting suppression uh, group trying to you know f- open up uh, voting rights for African Americans across the country. Like we need to have like a five minute long story about that with interviews of, with different people, like at the top of the TNT broadcast, right? Like are those are there those kinds of things that these players could still feel like their advocacy is working, and it's not just something as simple as a jersey patch, which I think for some guys, the Kyries and the Dwight Howards of the world, they're probably going to feel like, come on, like that's just a little symbol. Like what does that really do? I yeah. I, I'm pretty anti just a jersey patch or 
uh, an armband or whatever. I mean, I do think that those are symbolically effective in certain situations, but the call here is much more important. Like, I would be much more for, hey, we know we're getting this humongous television audience because people are starved for our product. Like, why don't, instead of a halftime show, we play a like mini documentary like a 10 minute long documentary about the the uh black wall street massacre something like like yeah that's something what you're where- thinking that's now i'm going the same direction as you or imagine this michael what if they just take a knee both teams before every single game for five six seven eight weeks straight right up before the election you don't think that's going to cause a significant conversation right that's not going to further the movement i think it would no, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I, I think I it's it's really it's funny because you know the more we talk about this, the more I am leaning towards they should play to amplify the message. But at the same time, Ben, it's like there are no games happening right now, and during a global pandemic, what is happening in the country in terms of? Uh, drawing attention to police brutality is the biggest story in the world and has been the biggest story in the whole world for two weeks. So from that perspective, this story and this movement does not necessarily need what we are discussing right now. It just, it doesn't. If you ask anybody on the street about Black Lives Matter, they've heard about it. They know what's going on and they either support it or they don't, or they're learning about it, or they want to better themselves and... Uh, are changing their opinion on it. Um, So I don't know, like, I just don't know, like, if we're kind of speaking idyllically about it. And there is the perspective that, hey, like, we're we're this, I, I think what's happening right now, a lot of a lot of good is coming out of a lot of the pain that we've experienced over the past two weeks. But I do also see when Steven Jackson says, hey, if we do play games, all of a sudden, all people are going to be talking about is Giannis versus LeBron. And I do think that that is true. I do think that the, you know, the conversation on social media is going to be about who scored 45 last night. So it is just this constant back and forth in my own head about what is the right path. And I have no idea what the right answer is. No, it's a really complicated question because I'm I'm with both Stephen Jackson and Kyrie on that. Like it will be a distraction. That's the whole point of sports, right? And even if you're able to carve out these creative uh, addendums to the game, even if you're putting decals on the court so it's always visible, even if you're having players mention it in every single interview, even if you're doing a um, you know some sort of a protest, whether it's kneeling or you know, during the national anthem or something else. Ultimately, people do really like to watch the sports. They like to talk about the sports. And a lot of the people who are within that demographic of, of people who are watching um, are some of the most engaged people right now on the social justice issue, right? And there is only so much time in a day. I think Lou Williams made that point as well. Like, you know, if you're watching a game, that means you, you're not out at the protest. It's like one, one or the other. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, one counter argument that's emerged, it's been a little bit more on the financial side. But it's sort of this idea of like, look, if you don't play, the league can use force majeure to basically terminate the collective bargaining agreement. And then at that point, you're into an extended labor battle, which is kind of like what uh, baseball is going through right now. And it could be a situation where NBA players who have a major platform and have access to national television regularly, 
they could be locked out for a while, right? Because it's the coronavirus. Um, you're not going to be able to have fans in your own gyms next season anyway. Um, you know, most likely, especially not at the beginning of the season. So if you're the owners, you could say like, well, we could just wait these guys out as long as possible, renegotiate a really, you know, kind of bare knuckled collective bargaining agreement and then go forward, you know, sometime way down the road. So if you're the players, you're not just weighing this idea of like, are we compromising the movement for a two-month time period. You're also weighing the idea of, are you contemplating your place within society in terms of how important you are as athletic figures collectively for a year or two years down the road, right? And that's a really, really tough calculation. And by the way, along the way, you've got a lot of players who need paychecks between now and whenever uh, that labor dispute would be settled. And, you know, they've got, a, you know, they got mouths to feed too. They have people who rely on them. And that's why it uh, it really is a tricky one. I, and I, I think I tend to, I guess, follow the money in these situations. And I just feel like there's so many different parties here who have a lot invested, whether it's the league itself, the owners, the television partners, and a lot of the rank and file players that ultimately a lot of them are going to have to play. They're going to feel compelled to play and try this thing. Can I just quickly address the force majeure and the possibility of the NBA's owners ripping up the CBA and then just kind of crushing them on the back end? Please. I like I think that like I think optics are overrated in general, but I think optics would really matter here. And if you are as a union expressing and communicating to the public that you do not want to play because of like, forget about the health and safety, which is a humongous factor here, but you do not want to play games because you your, your, your collective focus is more towards the fight for racial equality in the United States of America. If you are then to communicate that message and get subsequently punished for it by 29 white owners... I I don't think the NBA is that stupid. I really don't. So I personally see that threat. And if I were the players, I would call it bluff. And I understand the financial ramifications, but you are doing a lot of optical damage to your product in the eyes of the your core fans. Um, if you were to do that, you're just not reading the room in a, a, a critical way. So I don't know if you agree or disagree with that point, but no, I, I personally I, no, I don't think, think the owners would do that. Well, I agree that that's a major optics question, right? But I also think that, you know, ultimately the NBA is going to fall back on this idea of like, if we're not playing games, we're not making money and we can't pay out salaries, right? It's sort of like any mm-hmm. other, we're, like, we're just like any other business that's had to lay people off. And I think that you would slow play that whole thing out, right? I mean, you've got time and, and time would definitely be on the owner's side here, right? I mean, in, in every labor dispute we've ever is. seen, you know, the big money outlasts the little money. And I think if you're the owners, you say, okay, well, we gave you guys a, a scenario to come back and play and try to salvage this thing. We tried to do it the nice way. Um, and you decided for your own reasons internally, which we're not undercutting. We're just saying you guys made the decision not to play. Um, you know, at this point, you're forcing our hand. We have no other choice. We can't just be paying you $40 million salaries indefinitely if you're not going to, uh, you know, come to the table and live up to your end of the bargain, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that um, they would take a hit for doing that, but it would be a matter of timing and it would be a matter of messaging. And I think we've actually seen during a lot of labor disputes, the leagues uh, are 
are pretty decent at getting their message out. At least the last uh, NBA lockout, I felt like the NBA um, are, it was able to get its version of events out in kind of straightforward fashion, um, pretty consistently just banging the same drum about, oh, competitive uh, you know, balance and all this kind of stuff, you know, all these different buzzwords. Mm-hmm. And I, I would be very nervous if I was the players. And I would not be saying, hey, call their bluff and stare them you know, down across the table. I would be saying like, guys, I mean, there's a scenario here. We don't just lose the billion dollars from this year's playoffs. You know, we don't get anything next year. And we're in a situation where we're trying to you know, cling to the, the, the 50-50 split that they've had in this current deal. And the owners are saying like, look, you know, you guys you know, did not live up to your end of the bargain. So we're going to, you know, try to, uh, you know, twist you even harder. And at that point, you just don't really have a lot of leverage. I mean, your other option is to try to play overseas, try to form your own league. I mean, these are the same kinds of questions we saw during the last lockout. And they always come back to eventually the players realizing, hey, we've got to play and, and do this thing right. It's a terrible situation to be in. Obviously, I, I feel a lot of empathy for them. Um, but I I think that the concerns here are, are pretty real. So just on the question of, uh, of whether or not the, the players should call the owner's bluff, I, I think we've figured out who is the bolder and braver host of this podcast, Ben. Well, you know, sometimes people will walk <laughs> right off a cliff, Michael. They'll think they're brave, and there they go. And then all of a sudden, we're all staring down and looking at them. Um, let me ask you, do you see any other possible compromises, options on the table, ways that people can feel heard and, and in a meaningful way, not just the, as I was kind of making fun of earlier, oh, we hear you. We, you know, not the, you know, kind of, uh, you know, surface-level stuff that would likely you know, turn somebody like a Kyrie Irving off in this situation? You know, honestly, I think you hit uh, all of the, like, the the main ones that would actually be discussed. I mean, I, I go back to, despite everything I just said about, you know, calling the owner's bluff, I think that, like, the cynical take is that, you know, the, the money will win out in this situation, and that's kind of what I also agree. Like, I do think that the games will be played. I do think that... At the end of the day, money talks very loud, and C.J. McCollum saying that 150 or so of the NBA's 450 players are living paycheck to paycheck is something that we will see in like play out in reality, and the effect of something like that, if that is true, which I do believe it is true. Um, so yeah, no, I can't. I can't really think. Like, do you have any other compromises? I know you list off a long list of them, but I, I, I just don't have any others to kind of figure out this complicated situation. Well, I was trying to come up with the different carrot approaches. I mean, could you donate a a portion of all the revenue in Orlando to certain causes? I think that would be one that, you know, guys would be interested in because, of course, they're thinking about those kinds of questions themselves. Um, I mean, if you want to go the, you know, the the stick approach, you you could try to do something along the lines of, will come out and say, look, you know, kind of telegraph this whole thing with the force majeure and say it publicly and be like, look, guys, you're forcing our hand. Like, we don't really have a choice here. This is what we're going to have to do as kind of a wake-up call. I mean, Silver has always avoided those kinds of confrontations in a way that David Stern really never did. Um, And I think that even his language to the players earlier this summer was pretty cryptic in terms of saying something along the lines of, you know, well, our collective bargaining agreement really wasn't designed for a pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. read between the lines on that, and it's like, uh-oh, that means we need a new one. But if you don't read between the lines, it's like, oh, that doesn't sound terrible, you know? Like, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, 
So he could, they could try to get a little bit more aggressive. I don't know if they would really want to go down the route of like trying to say, hey, the only people who can't show up are, you know, have to have a medical reason for not showing up. Otherwise, they're going to be subject to some punishment. I mean, I don't think the NBA would want to go there from an optics standpoint, as you've pointed out. So I think those uh, levers are probably off the table for them. So it really probably does come down to, you know, trying to, to use the carrots and, and trying to have a, a compromise uh, you know, that way. I mean, the other thing that they could do is shorten the playoffs and make it a little bit less ridiculous so that 22 teams aren't there. But it does seem like the teams who uh, have been invited, at least their owners or, or leaders, want them there. I mean, that would be just one other possible compromise here of, of kind of reducing the burden on players for how long, uh, you know, they're they're down there in the bubble. But they don't really have a lot of time here, which is another reason why I think this is kind of on the owner's side. You know, the, their players are going to be expected to be there pretty soon. Uh, whether they're happy about it or not. Uh, and if they're not there, they're going to probably start to feel public pressure for not being there because their names are going to come out. Everyone's going to be talking about where is this player? How does it affect the team's title chances and everything else? And I do think for certain players, like there could be an absolute backlash here, um, in my opinion, unfairly. But you know, if you know player X or star X decides I'm not going to play, they're going to hear it. There's going to be segments of the fans who are saying, you're letting the team down, you're letting your teammates down. You're not seeing the bigger picture. What kind of an idiot are you? And that, you know, I feel bad for those guys, man. <laughs> it sucks. It does. Yeah. It, it really does. Um, and by the way, this we're only talking about the social justice stuff. These guys still have not gotten the health and safety protocol in full from the league. So they're, they're being asked to weigh these kinds of decisions without truly knowing um, how they're going to be, you know, protected when they're down there in Orlando. To me... Uh, it's super frustrating. That's why I'm going to put this final question on this subject to you, Michael, because you were telling me how brave you were and uh, you know how, what a strong, strong person you are compared to me. Um, <laughs> right now, Kyrie and, and Chris Paul call you and they say, thumbs up or thumbs down. Are you going to Orlando to play? We don't have all the information. They're kind of acknowledging that to you up front, but they're just saying, are you in or out? Uh, what's your answer? I hate these hypotheticals because I am a coward. No, I think that, like... Michael, remember, I only (laughs) ask you the tough questions. I don't ask everybody the tough questions. I come to you with the tough questions because I trust you for the answer. I mean, it just, it depends on, like, what kind of player I am. Am I established? Am I trying to make a name for myself? Am I a free agent? Am I already set up for life financially am i as i said before am i am i you know am i living paycheck to paycheck just like what is my situation in the league what is my status and that just makes it a lot easier for me to 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 make this call i mean it's no surprise to me that a majority of the superstars are totally fine with going back to play um and that some of the other guys who could stand to lose more money are kind of weary of that possibility like so you tell me how much money I'm making and you tell me what my role is and you tell me what my odds are All for right, my Michael. team to win the title and I can give you a better, much better answer. Your league average height, <laughs> league average weight, mid-level exception, salary, you're not an mm-hmm. upcoming free agent, uh, you're precisely 26 and a half years old. Um, so I'm Marcus Smart? Sure. Um, well, <laughs> would he be league? He's probably a little shorter than league average height. Um, it's probably an inch shorter, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how much more details um, do you need for, before I can extract an answer from you like I'm a dentist? I guess, like, f- like just me personally, I would, I would not be able to, 
like just I'm just trying to use my own perspective as Mike Pina and how I've just kind of processed what is happening in the world. And I I can't even like I'm I'm like you Ben like I obviously love and adore the NBA and I I, I would think about it constantly but basically for the first time in my whole life like the past I would say two weeks the NBA has hardly crossed my brain just by happenstance which is very rare for me and I'm reading a lot of things that have nothing to do with basketball and I'm uh, just not as absorbed in the day-to-day and the news with it and so when I hear someone like George Hill just say like I couldn't even give you an answer about whether or not I want to play because basketball is not even on my mind coming back to play is not even on my mind that's kind of the answer that i would probably give if cp and Kyrie called me up so what if they say what if your agent calls and says mike i've got um your <laughs> your plane ticket back to boston you know your home market uh for monday mm-hmm. um and you're going to be checking in with you know assistant coach x um and then they're going to be giving you that nasal swab which we know hurt the last time so we're going to go a little bit more you know gently on you this time so you don't cry i heard they yeah i heard that they're not giving them the hardcore test which is nice so i mean at that point it becomes a lot realer right and it's like are, yeah. are you going to be the guy who says no cancel the plane ticket get those miles back um i'm out you know because i think that's where i kind of draw the line like in theory i hear all these guys concerns can i imagine myself being a player and not showing up when my teammates are there i don't think i could do that i i, I think i would feel the, the peer pressure that side would, and yes. you know and the responsibility to the organization side and everything else and um, and that, that that's probably what would put me over to the edge to a yes, even though I would be doing so with crazy reservations. Am I showing up at training camp ready to bust everybody and have an all-star season? Probably not. I'm probably showing up with rubber gloves on and standing in the corner of the gym, you know? <laughs> like I'm, you yeah. Know? Uh, and then trying to get out of there so I can get back to watch uh, the political news or whatever else. But I still think I would do it. I, so I'm in the camp of yes. Does that, does that uh, change your mind one way or the other? I- Uh, I think honestly what I would do before I hopped on the plane is I would call a large segment of my teammates and I would tell them honestly what I was thinking and what I would be thinking is probably I'm leaning on not coming and I would gauge their reaction and see how okay they were with it and see if anyone else felt the same way that I felt. And then I would make my decision. So if all my teammates are like, hey, man, you know, you would really be letting us down and we're all going and we're all like where we we understand what, what's going through your head and we we're all sympathetic to it and we're all thinking the same thing. But look, like we have to we do feel like collectively we can make a bigger uh, we can amplify our voice going to Orlando and really like assuage some of your fears here. Like, would you please come with us? And then I'd be like, yeah, sure, I'll come because I'm a baby and I cave to peer pressure. But well, that's, before that phone call, I would be leaning against not going. So if, if my teammate called and said that, I think my answer would be, dude, stay home. Like if you're, you know, like if you're having serious doubts about it, even if I myself mm-hmm. had serious doubts, I feel like I would hold my teammate to a lower standard than I would hold myself if in a weird way. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, um, no, definitely. So I think that's where I would be. So then I guess this this would require all players to call each other and express those concerns and let, the, let each other <laughs> off the hook. And eventually nobody shows up and then there's no peer pressure. Um, maybe that's what we're dealing with with the players right now. Who knows? 
I think um, Adam Silver, we're, talk, we're taping this on a Monday. Adam Silver is supposed to discuss uh, topics related to being a commissioner on ESPN Monday night. We'll see if there's any updates from there. So you guys may be listening mm-hmm. to this on Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, we don't know yet what Adam Silver said. Um, we can probably imagine he's going to strike a conciliatory tone and try to you know make sure to, to keep this plan on track. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast with a message from Sleep Number. A healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? Eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Wow, well, maybe not so easy. But there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side. Your Sleep Number setting is the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, during the lowest prices of the season's sale, save $400 on a Queen Sleep Number 360 C4 Smart Bed, now only $1,299. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's www.sleepnumber.com slash cadence. C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Michael, we actually got a whole bunch of questions from the Open Floor Globe, and they emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. They just wanted to know all sorts of different aspects about the bubble. Some of them are, you know, bubbling over with their own ideas about what should take place down there in Orlando. And I want to start with Michael from Tasmania. He writes... Thanks for the great and entertaining content throughout these dark times. With all the talk about fans buying cardboard cutouts of themselves in the crowd, I had an idea to go one step further. For a fee that could go to charity, the fan could not only buy their cardboard cutout for the stands, they could pay extra to have a GoPro-like device installed on their seat with a link to view the live stadium feed. Throw in some kind of tracking chip in the ball that the GoPro tracks, and the fan would have a pretty close virtual approximation of an in-game experience. Additionally, this chip could be used to collect data for the league to see if some review calls could be tracked in the future, like goaltending out of bounds, did the ball graze the rim. So Michael's trying to do um, the job for Monty McCutcheon and the boys, too. We're going to leave that part out of it, Michael. Um, <laughs> but what do you think of this idea of, of turning to technology or virtual reality to spice up the viewing experience, um, you know, for uh, these NBA games. Because I've actually used a virtual reality headset to watch an NBA game. It gave me a mild headache, but it was a yep, very immersive experience. It was pretty good. I uh, we, we They let us try out some virtual reality, uh, a simulation. Um, I forget. It was before a Celtics playoff game, actually, when I lived in Boston. And I remember... Your point of view was sitting... Well, yeah, the point of view would change based on where the ball was. But there was one sequence where it was the Bucks versus... I forget what team. And Giannis had the ball. And he was charging towards the baseline. And all of a sudden, your feed is basically like you're on the stanchion. You're like attached to it is the perspective. And Giannis is just on this like fast break and he dunks it and he shakes everything. And I was just like, I'm about to throw up everywhere. So my personal experience with virtual reality watching yeah. NBA games this is, is what not I, the greatest. This is my, my thing with you, Michael. You're telling me how brave you are. <laughs> 
<laughs> five minutes later, you're talking about how you're doubled over in pain at a virtual version of Giannis dunking on you. I mean, come on, man. Be consistent. Totally understandable, in my opinion. But <laughs> No, actually, I, um, I remember doing a Cavs. I, I watched a Cavs game. I want to mm-hmm. say it might have been J.R. Smith, because this was a few years ago when they first rolled it out. But it was somebody who, who was driving at the paint hard and elevating, and you're, like, right there on that basket view. And you, like, yeah. duck out of the way, right? Or you, like, flinch. Like, at least I did in my living room, because I was, like, it's so lifelike. Um that could actually be a huge bonus right now. Like, do, don't the fans want to be as close as possible and get that kind of an angle as opposed to the the wider TV angle where you're seeing empty stands? I wish the technology was there for it. But my first question before answering Michael's question is, I did not know that there was a lot of talk about fans buying cardboard cutouts of themselves in the crowd. Is that a thing that I missed at some point? Well, look... Tasmania is a little bit more plugged in than you are, Michael. You said you, you haven't <laughs> really been you haven't really been paying as a careful attention. No, um, this is something that's happened in other sports leagues uh, around the world where they're putting the little cardboard, uh, you know, baseball in South Korea. Is that like where they're doing this? Well, they they did something else a little bit more extreme there with some sex dolls. I don't know if you heard about that. Um, I of course did. Yes. Yeah, and other just you know seat fillers. So I guess what he's saying is if you're going to put random cardboard cutouts, you might as well try to make them customizable. Um, I hadn't heard that particular idea, but it's not the worst one in the world. Um, couldn't be that expensive to you know screen print a bunch of those things. Um, but I think that he's on to something with uh, you know trying to get these different camera angles. But I, I wonder if the NBA is trying to be in like bare bones cost mode, right? Like does the idea of like extra GoPro cameras and – I heard somebody say iPad, uh, you know, technology from each seat to kind of like, uh, you know, beam a picture of the person who owns the iPad into the, the stadium. Is If that's maybe just a little bit too complicated and a little bit uh, uh, cost prohibitive here. So I just I, I, I like Michael's idea a lot. I would say the only problem that I can see with it is just that, yeah, I, I think it would like I can't imagine who is willing to pay for it and like how much it would cost the league to implement during these times where I feel like you know they're trying to save money so how much would this cost like would it be worthwhile and what is the like what is the buyer market I guess would be my questions yeah, about I mean it. look if we're gonna have 22 teams and a bunch of players aren't even showing up maybe we're gonna have guys with their fingers counting down the shot clock is that what you're getting at it's gonna be like nine to eight seven, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're like how bad could this get uh, all right Max from New Zealand and we're, we're so glad that uh Oceana is is weighing in big time here they write I have an interesting solution to the issue of pumping in fake fan noise to the new playoff games. What about to generate some kind of home court advantage? You had an option on the NBA app for fans to register their home team and apply to be a fan for each game. This option in-app would record the audio from the phone and pump it through the arena. I'm thinking you go the first 8,000 home fans and the first 2,000 away fans to register are accepted, and then you pump in the sounds from all the phones combined live into the arena. That way, when the home team makes a big play, there's a live reaction from their crowd, and they can ride that wave of energy. And if the away team does something, then you'll hear, you know, noise, but maybe not quite as loud of noise. So he wants to crowdsource the audio environment, Michael. Um, are you an audio expert? Could you make this happen? Is this plausible, um, or is this too far out there? 
As you and the listeners know from the first few episodes I recorded of this podcast, I am not an audio expert, <laughs> but I would say that uh, Max from New Zealand, I, like, I, I think this is totally genius. And just like generally speaking, I'm seeing a trend here with New Zealand and New Zealand just needs to be like running the whole world right now. Like from their ban of automatic weapons to how they completely eradicated the coronavirus to now this just brilliant idea for a max. New Zealand is just like the place to be and they've got everything going on. Look, so when you're on an isolated island like that, you have outside the box solutions by just default. You know, that's your only setting. You don't know how to think inside the box, Michael. It's great. <laughs> It's great. It is. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I, I love everything about this. I can just imagine, like, I, I, you know, in a previous episode, I was a, vi- a big proponent for, you know, miking up the players and the coaches and trying to hear as much as we can. And I, I think maybe we can have our cake and eat it, too, and we can do that. And we can also pipe in actual fans as they're reacting in their living rooms and in hopefully bars, if that's a thing. By the end, it probably isn't going to be a thing. But from their living rooms, that would be that would be cool. What I liked about this idea is it reminded me of when they do the college basketball games, right? So, like, the teams are in the Final Four, and then they show the live shots of, like, the home arenas for the teams that are playing. And all the, the crowd is in there just going absolutely bananas. And then they'll cut to that feed after a team wins, right? And it's just, like, 20,000 people jumping up and down going absolutely crazy, like, looking like they're, um, you know, about to you know storm the court in an empty gym. That environment is pretty amazing, and so it's almost like you can kind of recreate that from fans in their living rooms. Uh, and sometimes you'll get those reaction videos on Twitter too, where like somebody watches, you know, like Kyrie Irving's like series-winning three-pointer in 2016, and there's some Cavs fan who's like doing somersaults and uh, you know cartwheels in his living room, and he's like breaking his TV by accident because he's so excited, you know. Um, and then alternatively, you get those videos on Twitter where guys' teams lose and they throw their remote through their screen and like they pout and the girlfriend's like trying to stop laughing as they're having a meltdown and like holding their head. That's always great content. So you're trying to channel all of those things into the official product. I don't have the technical expertise to do it, but I also like where his head's at and it would be way better than artificial crowd noise completely. So I'm also on board. Um, Ryan from Toronto asks... From flying in the team's home court to first dibs on hotel rooms, I've yet to hear a reasonable and non-idiotic way to give the higher seed a slight advantage. What about giving the home team one extra timeout? It doesn't change the rules drastically like giving LeBron infinite fouls, but it does give the higher seed a slight edge. What do you think? And then he goes on to ask, also, what do you think the biggest challenge will be for players playing in the bubble I'm going off the board and and off the court with my answer. I think it's going to be the fact that they can't have wives or girlfriends until after the first round of the playoffs, which will probably be sometime in September. And what about the players with no significant others who rely on random hookups? Now, Ryan, I hope you are, um, you know, not swapping spit here during the coronavirus. I hope you're being very responsible in your own personal behavior. Um, and I encourage all of our listeners to, uh, you know, to... Abide by CDC guidelines on that stuff. But, Michael, take up either one of his questions. What do you think is going to be the biggest problem for the players from a quality of life standpoint? Or what's your solution for fixing home court advantage? Right. So I'm going to bypass part two of Ryan's question. Uh, Ryan, I love you. But part one, I 
I like it a lot. I think that adding an extra timeout to the home team would give them a, a, a slight advantage, imperceptible. But I want to take it a further step and oh, say boy. that during, dur- during that extra timeout, the home team is the only one that actually gets to huddle together and strategize. So the other team can't communicate with their coach and they have to stay on separate sides of the court. What do you think about that? I'm sitting over here as a cynic waiting to call this entire postseason a Mickey Mouse show. And you have now given me every reason to do that, Michael. (laughs) Come on. This is violating the sanctity of basketball. And by the way, there shouldn't be any huddles because that also should be against the rule, right? That's a good point. I thought about that. And like, I would imagine that it's okay because everyone's getting tested constantly. That's the whole point of the testing, right? So I think there's going to be huddles. But if the players who are on the away team during this one timeout and it has to, I guess like I haven't really thought about which timeout it would be and how you would designate it. Maybe it could just be like a first, it would have to be a first half timeout instead of a second half timeout. Well, here's how you designate best. it. You know, you do the 20 second timeout by touching your, your uh, shoulders. You're going to designate the Michael Pina timeout by touching your nose because this is a clown show. I mean, come on, Michael, <laughs> what are you trying to do to me? <laughs> Ryan, see what you did to us here with this. Just this question is, uh, I love it, but yeah, you're 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 driving Ben up a wall. Yeah, um, I liked your creativity on this too. I'm mostly giving you a hard time. I, it's I'm not just reacting to your idea. By the way, I'm reacting to basically every proposal of trying to instill some layer of home court advantage. I think that ultimately both teams uh, are impacted by neutral site, right? Um, and so unless the series goes seven games, are you really getting a tilted um, version there by not having the home court? I think um, I still think that it could actually play into the favorites uh, benefit by not having to go on the road for game three and, and not narrowing the gap in talent between teams, um, you know, by not having, uh, you know, those crazy conditional factors when uh, the, the better team is forced to go on the road for game three. But um, Michael, I think that they should just play these games straight up. Do we really need to add other gimmicks? Is that really necessary? And, and especially if those gimmicks are coming at changing the rule book. I mean, this is really where I get into sort of get off my lawn territory. You know, what are we going to say? Have one rim 10 foot 2 inches, one rim, you know, 9 foot 10 inches so that it's a little bit easier for one team to dunk? I mean, we, we don't want to do this, you're do we? S- you're such a purist, Ben. Jeez Louise. Um, I <laughs> well, look, I had to sit around and watch this uh, Mark McGuire documentary, and I had to watch him just spoil baseball forever with Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> did you see all the baseball fans doing that last night? I actually didn't watch it, but uh, I, I feel like I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm channeling those people who were disgusted by Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa with these takes. And I'll freely admit, um, you know, I'm going into, you know, baby boomer territory with some of this stuff. But what are we talking about changing the rules? No, I mean, I'm, I'm at the end of the day, I'm with you. I don't really want to see any rules changed. I also you know, wish that games were not being played in a bubble. Uh, And I'm one of the bigger proponents of just this belief that no matter what happens, there's going to be a humongous asterisk. And this season is kind of like just in its own chapter of the NBA history books. So, but that's like a really depressing way to look at it. So I'm trying to trying to get creative here, Ben, and you're just kind of like deflating my balloon. No, I appreciate that. Well, um, 
how about to get creative about player sex lives? Uh, Ryan wanted to know about the wives and girlfriends <laughs> yeah. and hooks up, hookups. This is a real concern. I mean, we don't have to get into the, the gory details here, but, you know, I mean, they're grown adults. Um, mm-hmm. They are, you know, generally have access to all sorts of, um, you know, fun environments that they can live and work in and, um, you know, party and after games and everything else. This is a real big difference. And um, don't you think that some of these concerns boil down to what Ryan's hinting at? I'd say it's uh, the player's concern. It is definitely not my concern. And uh, pondering it is not what I thought I would be doing when you asked me to be your co-host on this podcast. All right, Michael. Fine. <laughs> um, Ryan, you're right on. It's a major issue. There's not. It's not really good radio, um, so we could probably leave it there. We don't want any FCC violations. Um, we got a question here. It uh, came in from Thaddeus, and he wanted us to expand a previous conversation. He says, I'm curious to know which teams you think are best off and worst off with the whole um, you know, long delay until the Orlando return. Who has the greatest disparity between what was most likely when the season stopped and the new format with the major layoff? And so we talked about this a lot, Michael, with individual players. And, and Thaddeus is basically saying which teams are impacted the most. He thinks the team that will be the hit the worst is whoever has to play the Philadelphia 76ers in the first round. And he writes, look, I get it. Philly has vacillated between huge defensive monster and dumpster fire all year, often settling closest towards poor fitting disappointment. But Ben Simmons had been hurt. He's expected to be healthy. And Bede and Richardson had injuries. Horford was gassed, washed, or hobbled. And a layoff helps at least two of those things. <laughs> now they get a camp and eight games to integrate the two new additions with their roster. They're going to be a much tougher team to play in that first round. He says that the team that is best off, uh, by contrast, would be the Washington Wizards. He says, honestly, what are we even doing here? They freaking went 24-40, and 40, and now they just need to outplay Orlando over a few games for a chance at the playoffs. Think about that. And uh, just to underscore his point, Michael, I think that Washington's playoff odds before the shutdown were 0.1%, and now mm-hmm. they're substantially higher than that. I think somewhere around 10% to force that play-in game. So they really did have a, a major come up here. Um, who would you put in these categories, the, the categories that Thaddeus has described? So for worst, I, you know, you and I have kind of beaten around the bush discussing this team and the the negative impact of this layoff, but I got to go with the Milwaukee Bucks just because, uh, you know, they had so much momentum coming down the stretch. I mean, throughout the entire season, really, to be honest. And they were the heavy favorite to come out of the East and they had the MVP, and uh, they were just clicking on all cylinders with, I think, this like really rare and uh, unique on-court chemistry and understanding of the system that a lot of other teams that were also contenders were still trying to figure out a little bit. Uh, so the Bucks. I mean, it's not saying that the Bucks can't win it all, but I would just kind of pick them here because of where they were before and how mysterious and unknown the future is, which you have to kind of look at the top of the heap when you're when you're seeing who kind of is going to backslide. For sure. And they also, on top of that, they were set to have home court through the whole playoffs, probably, right? Right. So that's a major difference. And then also they're really leveraged on the three-pointers, both offensively and defensively. So if this neutral site impacts their shooters in some way or if it helps other team shooters in a meaningful way, um, 
their whole calculus for how they win games gets changed and it requires them to either adjust on the fly um, or stick to their guns and just hope. And, and either way, it's just more anxiety and stress than they were probably going to be feeling going into the normal playoffs. So what about the other category? Who's benefited, Michael? Yeah, I mean, anyone who listened to our quarantine draft episode is not going to be surprised when I say the Houston Rockets because I just think that, like, they are so set up to benefit from a unpredictable, chaotic environment and from their style of play to their lineups to just, I guess, the individual pieces. I just, it like... You know, I've kind of semi-facetiously been predicting them to win it all, and they are clearly at a disadvantage when going up against the Clippers and the Lakers in a playoff series. And now it's just like, we just don't know what, like, they have the talent, and they have some of the pieces, and they shoot a lot of threes, and we just don't know what any of this is going to look like. So I just think that they are the most, they have the most to, to gain, I would say, by the situation. Yeah, I would I would put the Toronto Raptors in the team that has the most to gain by this situation, mostly because I'm like having flashbacks. Do you remember when uh, Spain won the FIBA World Cup and we were all, and like Marcus Gasol had just won a title and the World Cup and he like basically played basketball for almost 12 months straight? And my whole thought was just like this guy is just going to be gassed all season long. Like this is never going to work out. Like uh, you know, if if Toronto, I mean, I, th- I thought Toronto was going to be good, but I thought they were going to have some you know, a pretty serious hangover effect. And they have a bunch of veterans who I think are going to be able to come back fresh here. And I think that's one of the biggest impacts possible. And they've already got the chemistry established from the past. So to me, I think Toronto is a, a team in that category that could really benefit where they were always a, a little bit scary to me. I guess you got to make sure that, you know, Lowry's still in shape. I think that's been one issue in the past where he, he fluctuates a little bit. But, um, you know, Van Vliet's playing for a contract. Um, you know, some of these other guys are coming up on free agency and they're going to be rested. It's a nice showcase, a creative coach who can adapt to different environments. I mean, I, I feel like that their standing is in, in a pretty good spot. Plus, if their first round opponent winds up being Brooklyn, they're getting them without Kyrie and KD, um, which, you know, that was at least somewhat question, um, you know, earlier in the summer about would these guys try to come back. So that's pretty ideal. Can I actually throw in an addendum to worst team? and kind of what who's going to most, be most negatively impacted by all this. Could you imagine if I said no right now, Michael, like how horrible that would be? Of course you can. I'd throw my phone across the room. Um, <laughs> I think the, the most obvious answer here is the Utah Jazz, right? Because like, of Boyan? Boyan, and then if we're going back to like March, early March, like – there was a lot of momentum with this team. And then all of a sudden, I mean, you can debate whether or not they were a real or a faux contender or whatever, but they were a pretty good team in the Western Conference. And then their two best players get into a lot of, there's just, a, there's a rift between their two franchise players. So I think like short-term and long-term, you could argue that the Utah Jazz suffered the most. And then, yeah, sure. Like also their second or third leading scorer has wrist surgery and he's not going to be available, which is, I, I like, I can't think of, is there any player better or more important than Boyan Bogdanovich that just was playing during the regular season and then now he's not going to be available? I don't think there is one. I mean, the only other one who's in that category would be LaMarcus Aldridge. Um, but, you know, the Spurs yeah. didn't really have a chance, so that doesn't really have as big of an impact. 
Um, no, you're, you're making great points. Are you buying that uh, Gobert and Mitchell are kind of in a better place right now? They're going to be able to put these pieces back together? Or, like, I, I guess I'm what I'm asking is, could coming back actually be good for them? Because at least you get to see whether it can work. If they just didn't come back at all, and it was just like punting until next season, you're just letting those negative, isolated feelings kind of fester. Because remember how sad Rudy Gobert seemed like for about a straight month there, where like didn't really seem like Donovan Mitchell wanted to talk to him. There wasn't really anything he could say to make it right. It wasn't really his fault that he got sick, you know. And I think we know that now. Um, but it, it did seem like a pretty big wedge in their team. Has enough t- time passed where it's healthy? Um, and could there have been a worse scenario if it's, the whole thing is just canceled? Yeah, I mean, my view on this hasn't really changed from when it all went down. And that is, like, I just have a pretty difficult, like, I find it difficult to believe that they, like, the coronavirus positive testing and possible possibly one player infecting the other, even though, yeah, we don't know who infected who. Um, is like the core reason for the discontent. So clearly there was, or in my opinion, clearly there was more to it there and it goes a little deeper uh, that we don't know. So I don't, I don't know if they've kind of rectified whatever issues they had between them. And I also don't think that if they were to come back and play, they would, you know, suddenly look terrific and, win two playoff series. I just don't think that this team is able to do that based on Boyan not being available. Yeah, another team that got hit here, obviously, is Memphis, um, where, you know, they're now in a situation where those playing games could come against teams that have more experienced players. They're feeling like they're targeted because they just, you know, didn't get to keep their playoff spot and the whole thing gets expanded kind of at their expense. So I think that's another team we could throw into that category. Michael, I want to close on a very light question here for you. Kerry writes... Hey guys, your conversation recently about the next presenter of the finals MVP got me thinking, who would be the worst person to present the finals MVP? Now, Michael, remember we were saying if Bill Russell can't be there for health reasons, maybe Michael Jordan should step up to the plate, or maybe in the future guys like Kareem or Magic should be considered for that honor. Kerry wants us to go the other way. He nominates, what about Ricky Davis, Joe Barry Carroll, Bill Lambeer, what do you think? Who are the worst possible presenters for finals MVP? Well, Bill Lambeer might suck, but he is a two-time champion. So it's it's kind of tough to include him in this company. Um, the first person well, that popped into my... <laughs> well, hold on, hold on. I think there are different layers to this, right? Because okay, you have, obviously, there's the presentation of the league right you obviously want the league to be putting its best foot forward and there's no better foot forward to put than bill russell um right so you know bill lambeer you know having people consider him like the crybaby and the whiner and the flopper and everything else it doesn't necessarily put the the league in the in the best light but as you've mentioned at least he's a champion however if you're a champion and the greatest moment of your life is about to be crowned and you have to take the trophy from bill lambeer aren't you going to react with extreme disgust like you might actually just prefer somebody like ricky davis who you know is a little bit more neutral in terms of history you know not like a major major villain i mean sure he chased a triple double once but you know it's not like he (laughs) symbolizes like a bad boys era that a lot of people don't like 
Um, I can understand some people being like, yeah, I really have to take this trophy from Bill Lampier right now. That's what you're making me do. I could see some backlash there. I think, uh, yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. I, I, you know, the, the first person that popped into my head when reading this question, even though he technically won a ring and he played significant minutes in game seven of an NBA finals is J.R. Smith. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I mean... So are you looking at this from the league's perspective or from, like, a a recipient's perspective? If I was getting handed the finals MVP trophy, I'd be like, this just weighs less than it otherwise would have. (laughs) So, Do you think J.R. Smith would show up with shirt on or shirt off for the presentation? He's, I mean, he's got to do shirt off, right? There's, like, no I think there's some people out there, Michael, who that sounds great to them. I think that they're thinking, like, Michael, what are you talking about? This sounds like a great party. Yeah, I can see that, but I'm more looking at it from the perspective of when I think of J.R. Smith, honestly, I don't think of him celebrating with his shirt off. Um, I don't think of him beating up someone who broke his uh, a car window in his truck. Um, what I think about is the meme of LeBron pointing at the score when J.R. did not know uh, what was going on at the end of game one of the NBA finals in 2018 and basically ruined one of the most magical performances any individual has ever had. And as someone who was there in the building that night, like I'm upset <laughs> that Jay, I'm still like a little upset that JR marred that, that performance. Cause if they won, it would just be like this historical footnote that was that it's like very significant. Um, no, but it made it so much it, better. God, because it's like it, how, I mean, we've seen a lot of great <laughs> we've, we've seen a lot of great LeBron games, but that we've never seen one blundered away that badly. I mean, I remember <laughs> yeah. I had to like Google like wrong way Regal. Do you remember wrong wrong way Regal? Uh, learning about him growing up, like the guy who like scored a touchdown in his you know in his own end zone because he ran for like eighty yards in like some big moment. Um, just like going back through the history books on the fly during that overtime period, trying to come up with like similarly ridiculous blunders. Um, just a great time to be alive. Michael, I've got a nomination here that I think trumps even J.R. Smith. I think it's the right answer. Um, I don't know if you have more candidates, but I'm going to give you mine. Here it comes. Ready? Tim Donaghy. There's nobody <laughs> There's nobody worse than Tim Donaghy. Can you imagine being on the platform? And I'm pretty sure he's down there in Florida too. Can you imagine being on the platform? He shows up with like an ankle monitor and a few free copies of his book, autographed, ready to hand them away to the players, you know, doing whatever he can to like flash the cover onto the screen. He's probably got, uh, you know, bookie slips, you know, coming out of his pockets. Um there is no one worse. I think it's it's the most disgraceful chapter of NBA history. If he presented the finals MVP <laughs> and you had to take it from him, you'd be like, did I really win this thing fair and square? Did he bet on me? I mean, just the whole thing would be pretty rough. I think he's the answer. What do you think, Michael? I hope that our producers don't edit out the the just the black air that <laughs> took place before you said Tim Donahue's name. Because, like, were you were – you, suddenly like hesitating when you were before revealing that name or were you just pausing for dramatic effect or what was where were you going through there 
Look, Michael, I have a lot of tools in my tool belt, okay? And silence occasionally is a great rhetorical device. It makes you think, it makes you sweat, you know, it makes you uncomfortable, it makes your wheels turn in your brain. And I could hear you over there thinking, thinking, and never arriving on Tim Donaghy. And so there you go. What do you got? Um, if you were a player, how would you react taking the trophy from Tim Donaghy? Would you pretend to, like, not receive it, allow it to fall on the floor, and sort of, you know, give him his just desserts? I mean, wh- how do you respond in that situation? I'm just thinking about, like, if Kawhi Leonard is the finals MVP, like, how he responds. Like, does he walk up to the podium? Does he stare into the distance and his arms never leave his sides? Like, I I just think that the, the, the in- unintentional and intentional comedy would be through the roof. So I'm, I'm actually, like, wanting this to happen now, and, and how uncomfortable it would make everyone involved would just be terrific. Yeah, number two would be one of the Disney characters, you know? If they, like, and I don't know who it would be. You might know the characters. Well, yeah, you got to say which one, man. You got you to gotta pick one. Well, I'm trying to figure out, like, which one of these characters has the least credibility, and frankly, I can't. It's, al- it's, it's, it's always Goofy. Goofy is always the, the answer for whether it's good or whether it's bad. You just got to go with Goofy. Okay. Would you rather have the trophy handed to you by Goofy or Tim Donaghy? <laughs> <laughs> You can make an argument for Donaghy in that situation just because, like... He's affiliated with basketball in yeah. some and it's distant not, way. Yeah, it's not just, like, a shameless Disney plug, you know? There's, like, you know, there's at least some, you know, essence of hoop. You know, he grew up wanting to be a referee and everything else. I mean, I don't know, maybe? You know what this made me think of? Wh- whoever is named the finals MVP, if they... Do not say, like, go out of their way to not say, I'm going to Disney World. I think what that would be, like, if they, like, shouted out Six Flags or something. That's, like, now all I really want and the number one reason I'm going to watch the last game of the finals. Well, that's why we need the Warriors in this thing. Because if it was Draymond and he won it, he would be like, I'm getting the bleep out of Disney World. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He would not mince any words. All right, Michael, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, thanks for sticking with us. Check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael is on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver, on Twitter at Ben Golliver. We will be back later this week with more of your questions and hopefully some updates on the NBA's developing plan. I can't say this enough, Michael. We're getting pretty close to these guys reporting back to their teams. If everything stays on track, we are going to probably have some, you know, camp, uh, you know, rumors and, and other uh, news items coming forward here in the not too distant future. Guys, if you have other um, you know, plans, concept ideas, things that you want to see in these bubble broadcasts, like our buddies from Tasmania and New Zealand, send them in, right? Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. All right, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, man.